0: He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Good, good. And because of all the crazy stuff in the world that's going on, uh, it's a, a definite time to rejoice in the resurrection of the Messiah because not only did he seal our salvation, but because of the resurrection, he promises a future. And that future will not be like what you see in Shanghai uh, with people being locked down, throwing themselves off of buildings. You'll not see Ukraine. You will not see Iran going crazy with nuclear bombs and stuff like that and the world in the immoral mess that it's in. And because of that resurrection, it promises this, this kingdom that's coming where it's holiness and righteousness and there's no, no crime or anything like that. And so we're celebrating that today, not only for just salvation, but our future. And so what I wanted to do is take you through a little bit of the full Passover. And we, we, we talked about it briefly when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do today, but we don't really go all in depth and drill down as we need to sometimes because we're limited in time. So what I thought I'd do is, b- believe it or not, this is the, the one time that's pretty rare when... Resurrection Sunday is following the Jewish feasts because Friday was Passover. Yesterday was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then today is Feast of Firstfruits, which is exactly how it should be celebrated. Christ resurrected on the Feast of Firstfruits. And so um, you can thank the Catholic Church a long time ago for divorcing itself from its Jewish roots and because it went anti-Semitic, really, and um, they basically put Resurrection Sunday on an off day, and not not coinciding it with Passover, which that's what they should have done. And again, it was a total anti-Semitism. It's it's the churches had to suffer. Am my 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 thing not up running right now. Let me get my uh, my slides going here. Anyway, um, what you see in the Passover Seder, and it's called the Seder because in Hebrew it means the order, and it's not only just simply the order for the meal and for the, the ceremony, it's for the order of the Messiah. Because there's an order you'll see in the meal, but it's, it follows what happened in Messiah's life. Through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so I wanted to take you through that and drill down a little bit more so you can see all the nuances in the Passover that we don't normally see. So, anyway, we're going to look at it right now. So, let's start where it started from. Um, When the hour had come, he sat down and, and the 12 apostles with him. This is at the Last Supper, but they're celebrating Passover, right? Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. They still didn't know what he was talking about. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So the great news is this, that out of this came the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper will one day end. But believe it or not, when we're in the kingdom for a thousand years, we will observe the Passover every year. This is a feast that's not going to go away uh, because it points back to what the Lord did. And so uh, he says, I won't eat it until you're with me and basically in the kingdom. And that's when we will celebrate that. It goes back to Exodus. As you know, the origins go back to the original Passover in Exodus when the Lord freed Israel out of Egyptian bondage. It's, and the Lord said to them, this month shall be the beginning of months. This is Nisan. So right now, you're in Nisan right now in the Jewish months. Nisan is the beginning of the religious calendar for Israel. But here's an interesting thing. On the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Basically at three o'clock in the afternoon. You would would sacrifice the lamb at three in the afternoon. Now, what does this have to do? Well, it pointed back to what what they did in in Egypt, but it pointed forward. Now, here's what would happen in the Passover. Before participating in the Passover, you would have to go get a lamb. You would purchase a lamb, um, and then you would take that lamb into your house and it would become like a pet to you for four days. And the kids would get fond of it, grow close to it. But as you, as the father or the mother, you are looking at if the lamb has spot or blemish. Because in order to sacrifice that lamb, it has to be without spot and blemish. It can't have any defects on him. And so you're looking at this lamb. It's one year old. It's a male. And you're making sure that it's all copacetic with kosher, it's kosher and everything's good to go so like for instance right now Israel is looking for a red heifer to reestablish their temple if that red heifer I think has two hairs on it that are not red it's disqualified that's how precise it has to be and so they would observe it for those four days in their house at the 14th of Nisan, you would take the lamb, and again, you would declare that the lamb is without spot and blemish, and then it can be offered to be sacrificed. That was the four days of observation. Now, let's bring this to the Messiah, what it pointed to. The Messiah enters Jerusalem the last week before he's crucified. We call it Palm Sunday, right? The triumphal entry. What it's really about is him as the Lamb of God getting ready to be examined because he comes on the 10th of Nisan, okay? So he is the Lamb of God, and he is now going to go through four days of examination. And his examination will be with the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, all those who are involved in the Sanhedrin. He's going to be interrogated. And what you'll see in the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John is primarily about the last week, about this examination. And so as they're looking at Jesus, they're examining him theologically. And as you recall, there's this constant debates going on for the first four days in Jerusalem. It's constant, constant, constant. And it gets pretty heated, right? But Messiah wraps him in a theological pretzel so bad that they can't even answer him at the end of it. So they asked him no questions. So he goes through all the religious leaders, and then they, can't, they don't know what to say to him after that because he has shown that he's approved theologically. He's pure, and he's pure morally because they, he says, pick one of the sins out I've done, point it out. And they can't. They can't accuse him of anything. So they can't accuse him morally, nor can they accuse him theologically. Therefore, he is without spot and blemish. But in the Passover, in order to have this Passover lamb sacrificed, you have to declare it clean, that it's clean, and then it can be sacrificed. Well, the Jews wouldn't do it. The religious leaders would not do it. They would not say he's clean. But God is going to make sure the Passover is kept. And God's gonna make sure someone's gonna declare him clean. And you know who God uses. He is handed over to Pilate. Pilate interrogates him. And three times, three times, Pilate will say, I find no fault in the man. And they keep saying, crucify him, crucify him. He has him whipped. I find no fault in the man, crucify him. Crucify him. I find no fault. You guys crucify him. Three times a pagan Roman declares the Passover lamb clean. Bingo. Now he can be sacrificed in concert with Passover. Amazing, huh? And then you shall take some of the blood and put it on, two, uh, on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where you eat it, so on the sides of the door and on the top. Now, the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the term comes from, Peshach. I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the death of the firstborn. Uh, is... is Jesus, the firstborn, yes, he's firstborn from the dead. So the term firstborn is given to Jesus. And the, it's the death of the firstborn. So Jesus, the firstborn, is, dies and takes the wrath of God. And so it's all connected to him. Now, notice what they have to do. They have to put it on the top of the lintel. They have to put it on the sides. And then in the basin is where the lamb would be slain and its blood would be on the ground. That's a picture of the cross, if you can see it of where the wounds would be on the head and the arms and then on the feet. Jesus said, I am the door. He's referring to the, uh, the, the Passover door that would have this blood over the lentils and the top and in the basin where the blood would be. Now, no, notice what he says, that you are to take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost. So they would take uh, a hyssop or something like that and put it on the doorpost and apply it. If you, if you just sacrificed the lamb but did not apply it, it would not be a protection from you from the wrath of God, from the death of the firstborn. Well, what is in this application thing? It's one thing to know that Jesus died for the sins of the world. It's another thing to apply that to your life. And the way you apply that is through faith. The only way that you can apply the blood to your door of your heart, so to speak, is by faith. That's how you apply. So that's why they had to do this to the door. They personally had to do something. They were responsible for applying the blood. And that's what you and I are responsible for, for receiving Christ as Savior. And that's what it it pictures. Now, Obviously, John the Baptist saw him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John is referencing the Passover Lamb, and he says, This is the real Passover Lamb, which the Lamb typified and looked forward to. It's the Messiah. It's him. And notice what this Lamb will do. Take away the sin of the world. It will, uh, this, this person has the ability to take away the sins of the world. Now, again, it has to be applied. It doesn't mean universal salvation, but because of Messiah's sacrifice and death, it makes every human being savable. Not that they will get saved, but they are savable. There's no one without without the reach of God through his blood. God can reach anybody if they will believe is the idea. So it makes everyone savable. There's not a person alive or has been that's ever not savable because of the death of the Messiah. He basically broke down the sin barrier and creates the bridge between us and God through him. Now the Seder, <clears throat> the order of the service cannot be done alone. It has to be with others. And, and so when we celebrate Passover, you'll do it at, you would do it at your home, but you would, if you didn't have anybody with you, you would have to invite people to it. Because it cannot be done alone. It has to be done in community. It's the same idea with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper cannot be done alone. It has to be in the community of believers when it's, it's done. But what does this mean? This slams American Christianity where so many Christians think they can do their Christianity alone by themselves, on their own. They never come to church. They say they believe in Jesus. They say they got saved, but they never come to church. They never are with the body of Christ. They're never in a Bible study. That is anathema to not only the Passover, but the Lord's Supper and the body of Christ, to think that way. Do you know why they think that way? That comes from the secular world where they want to privatize religion. That you do your religion on your own and don't do it publicly with other people because you draw your strength from other believers when you're with them. That's the whole purpose of it. And they're trying to do, uh, make us uh, feel that it's okay just to watch church on TV. Now, I, I know some people can't get it out of the house. I know some people are trapped. I get that. But those people who choose to stay alone are doing something very unwise and it's not gonna help them. Anyway, number two, the Seder must be done in a reclining position. It, you, they didn't sit up on a chair and a, a high table. Um, and it usually was either a low table like this, this tall or just a blanket on the ground spread out. And what you would do is your head would be at the table and you would lean on your right elbow this way and your feet went back until you were lying down and you eat you you would eat it just taking your hand like this. This is why when John, the apostle, says he went into the bosom of the Lord or the chest of the Lord, you can see how he would do that because he's laying right next to them, and all John has to do is lean back this way, and he's in the chest of the Lord. You can see how they're laying like that? That's how they would lay. And so he would lean back in the Lord into the Lord and said, Is it I? And so what it symbolized is this is how free people ate. And it symbolized they're coming from bondage to freedom. They're not slaves anymore, so you eat like a free man. This, as far as a cultural application, is where our founding fathers got the concept of freedom from. They got it from the Exodus. They got it from the Bible, And and basically, the idea is that every man has been set free and they should enjoy the freedoms given to them by God. God is who set them free. And so the the big thing in Israel, they're celebrating freedom in the Passover. That's where Americana comes from, this freedom that we, we so love. But what is happening now? People are trying to take our freedom. Remember this. Godly people love Freedom ungodly people don't they love enslavement and they want to enslave other people so when you see these people wanting to take your freedoms is because they're ungodly that's why because godly people you know what we just want to live our lives we don't want to put on anybody on ourselves we want to raise our families just do the right thing and have a relationship with god and no one interfere with that That's what godly people do. We mind our own business and we stay busy doing our own thing with God. Ungodly people don't like your freedom and seek to take it away from you because they want to control how you act. And this goes against this principle right here in the the Seder, the Passover. Interesting. The Seder then must leave an empty chair and a cup for Elijah. So... You have a, at the Seder table, you will have an empty chair like this, and then you will have a cup of wine poured for Elijah. So, this is Elijah's cup, and you must have it at the Passover. Now, why do we have Elijah's cup? Why do we make a, an empty chair for him? Because he is predicted to come back. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will stumble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. He basically cut off. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, the same guy in the, in the Old Testament. When? Before. Notice the word before. When? Before when? The coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That day is called the seven-year tribulation. Now, did you catch that? This is why they set an empty uh, chair and a a glass for Elijah, because they know that Elijah is predicted to come back out of heaven and come on this earth. And what will he do? His job is to turn the hearts of the children and fathers of Israel back to God to receive the Messiah. That's his job. Now, notice what it says. He comes before the Great Tribulation, basically. The seven-year tribulation. So this is it, very interesting. The rapture could happen at any point in time. We're just promised the rapture prior to the tribulation. But Elijah says he's going to come before the tribulation. Is it possible if we, if we don't get raptured anytime soon that we could see the return of Elijah? Yes, we could. It's a pre-tribulational return. It's possible we can be raptured and not see it. So it can go both ways. But what I'm telling you is, you could see this. That's why we leave an empty chair. That's why we leave a cup for Elijah, because he is foretold to come back. Now, some people have conjectured that maybe he's one of the two witnesses, and maybe Moses is the other witness, or Enoch. But definitely Elijah is coming back. And, and there's a good chance he's one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. Now, with that being said, um, The interesting thing of his job, when he comes back, I mean, Elijah is a, you know, he he would be in a, I don't know what kind of state. We wouldn't be glorified at this point, but he would come back as a human being. And if he's one of the two witnesses, he will die at the hands of the Antichrist, if that's Elijah. Now, now the two witnesses can be uh, Enoch and Moses, and Elijah can still be functioning, Uh, So he doesn't have to necessarily be the two witnesses, but it's very interesting that this happens. And again, that's why we leave this this opening for Elijah. Anyway, the next order of events in the Passover is the bedekat chametz, And what that is, is you are to purge out the leaven from the house. Now, this is a routine um, that the father of the house would go through with his kids, and basically, what they do is they go through the house and they look for any piece of leaven you could possibly imagine. So all bread is, is removed, uh, any mold is removed from showers or anything like that, and toilets and all that stuff, and any, um, any fungus or anything growing is considered leaven like that. That's a, it's, it's a corruption. It's a corruption. So they would actually go through the house and clean the whole house out of the leaven. Now, when this got carried into modern days, and the Jews still do this, they clean out the leaven before Passover. It actually transferred itself into Americana. And do you know how this tradition transferred into Americana? It's called spring cleaning. No joke, I'm not making that up. The concept of cleaning out the leaven from the house went into Americana as spring cleaning. When did we do it? In the spring. When is Passover? In the spring. You see how it jumped into our traditions of spring cleaning? It was to get all the leaven out of the house. Anyway, the father will take a candle made out of beeswax, and they will search the house. And the instruments they have is a bag to put the leaven in that they find, a feather to sweep any crumbs, a wooden spoon to gather it, and then that's a beeswax candle, to uh, gather, or sorry, to light the room so they can see. Now, here's what the father of the house does. He goes through every corner of the house, the cabinets, the cupboards, the drawers, every room, the closets, and he take that candle and shine that light in every darkened place of their house, even going under the beds, and the kids will follow him as they do it. And, they, and basically today, They're they're pretty good about getting the leaven out. But so what the father will do, he'll put 10 pieces of bread out through the house and then the kids have to go and find the 10 pieces of bread and they put it in the bag. Now, the idea is once they get the leaven, they put it in this bag and they burn the bag. They destroy all the leaven by fire. That's why a wooden spoon is used because the spoon that touched the leaven must be burned as well and so will the feather. It all needs to be burned up because if it touched leaven, it needs to be exterminated by fire, by fire. Now, what is the significance of this? Well, it's a picture of before you participate in the Lord's Supper, before you participate in the Passover, you must get your house in order. What does that mean? You take the light, the light... And you let it shine in all the rooms in your heart. You go in the closets where there's skeletons. You go under the bed where you've hid monsters. You go into the cabinets where you've hidden things, and you expose everything to the light. And then once you find the leaven, it is your responsibility to get the leaven out of your house. Okay, So you do that, you take that leaven, and you get it out of the house, and you have to burn it. Well, what does that mean? Remember, fire is associated to judgment, God's judgment, fire. So what do you, what do you mean? So I, I, get the, I find the leaven in my own heart, in, my house, in the household of my heart. I get the leaven, I take it out, and I allow it to be burned in the fire. Well, what is that? Well, what that is, is once you find that leaven, as a believer, you confess that, and then that is judged. Your, the blood of the Messiah will cleanse you, and that blood it has a cleansing property because the one who shed the blood experienced the fire for you, the judgment of God. So from 12 to 3 p.m., Messiah was being judged by God the Father. That's why the whole area became dark. And that's why nothing was said in that period of time. At the beginning of when the wrath starts with Messiah, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. And nothing is said for the next three hours. There's no mocking, there's no jeering, there's nothing being said. And then when it hits three o'clock, when the, the wrath of God is being lifted from him, he says i thirst because the fire of wrath of god makes one thirsty and so he says i thirst so the wrath of had been put on him so the burning of the sin happens at the cross but in order to have that happen on a fellowship basis you must confess that sin and then that sin is taken to the cross and the wrath of god is applied to it then retrospectively and therefore, confession is what, do it, what does it for you, and the blood of Christ cleanses you because that's the sacrificial blood. So that's the important, uh, the import, uh, the important uh, aspect of the Passover is the cleaning out of leaven from you, cleaning out of sin, making you uh, whole again. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul picked this up. He says, therefore, purge out the old leaven. Get that old leaven out of you. That you may have, be a new lump, the new creation in Christ, that you experience a new creation, the new uh, nature. Since you are truly unleavened, you're unleavened now in the new nature. There's no sin in the new nature. The sin is in the old lump, the old leaven. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Because he did this, this ha- you have the ability to purge out the old leaven. You can have victory over sin. You can have mastery over the sin nature. Anyway, now let's get to the lighting of the candles. So, um, what they would do in a Passover is you have the oldest person, oldest lady in the house come and light the candles. So, would anyone like to volunteer? I didn't think so. So, Val Joe uh, will come and do this for us, and it has to be a woman. Valjo is not the oldest woman in the room. She is turning 39 next month, I believe, and so um, she's still a youngin. Okay, so the lighting of the candle has or candles have to be done by a woman. Now, when I read the rabbis this week, I tried to figure out what are the rabbis saying and why a woman has to do this, and they give all kinds of reasons, but none of them make sense. None of them. I, I, it's all theory. But they should have known why a woman needs to do this. Now, this has been done for thousands and thousands of years. At this point, when you ask a a rabbi or a Jew today, why do you do that? And they say, it's tradition. It's like Tevye in Fiddle of the Roof. It's just tradition. We just do it. This is the way we do it. But there is a spiritual significance of a woman doing it. So what she's going to do, light the candles. And then what she's going to do is wave her arms to her three times as she welcomes the feast of Passover. And then she's going to cover her eyes. And then we're going to say the blessing. And I'll explain why she does that. So go ahead. And then she covers her eyes. And then when her eyes are covered, we say this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your grace and has permitted us to kindle the festival light. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has kept us in life and has preserved us and has enabled us to reach this season. And now she can undo her, her eyes. Now, why is that? The idea is you, you, she's taking the feast in She's welcoming the feast, and then she must close her eyes after she lights the candle so that she doesn't have an unfair advantage of being blessed first before anyone else. So she covers her eyes, and once the blessing is said, then she can see the candles, and that, is the, that now has been transformed to the Passover candles, and everybody at the table is blessed at that point in time. It's to prevent her, by the covering of eyes, for having a blessing before everyone else has it, okay? And you think, like, what is the big deal about this? Well, it's significant. Let me get you back to your, your seat. Sorry about that. The idea, then, is this. The candles represent the light of the world. And who is that? Jesus said he was the light of the world, Right? As a woman welcomes him, brings the, the Passover to the family, who was the woman who brought the Messiah into the world? Miriam. Now, this is interesting. As I was reading the rabbis this week, um, I found it curious. They, they, won't, they, may, they, they should know this. They should know that a woman will bring the Messiah into the world. They should know that. How should they know it? Because, well, that's Brandon. That's a New Testament. No, no, no. No, no, no. Uh, You go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. By the seed of the woman, the Messiah will come and crush the head of the serpent. Seed of the woman? That's, That's weird. You don't say things like that. The seed comes from the man. But in this case, when Moses writes this, he says, no, it comes, this Messiah figure is coming from the seed of a woman. It's a hint at a virgin birth. No man is involved. And then when you get to Isaiah seven, he tells you flat out, it's gonna be a woman who ha- and she's gonna be virgin and she's gonna have the Messiah. So when the rabbis do this and say they don't know, they should know. A woman would usher in the Messiah, and we know that happened with Mary, or Miriam is her real name. Mary was allowed to do this. You know the the Christmas passages? And he, Gabriel, came unto her, Miriam, and said, Hell, you that are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Fear not, Miriam, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Yeshua, he shall be great and, call, uh, and shall be called the Son of the Most High, El Elion, And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom shall be, uh, shall be no end for no word from God shall be void of power. And Miriam said, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. And there you go, that's why... A woman lights the candles. Remember the order. Notice the order. We're following an order of the Messiah. Now we move to the four cups in Passover. There are four cups. And why do we say there's four cups? Because there's four verbs that God will do for Israel and will do for us. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. The same is said about Israel is the same is said about us. I will bring you out of this world that you're in. He brought them out of Egypt. He brings us out of the world. I will deliver you. How will he deliver us out of this world? By the sacrifice of the Messiah. The wrath will go to him instead of us. And the wrath in in the Old Testament went towards Egypt and not Israel to deliver them. I will redeem you. How are the Israel redeemed? By the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. That's how they were redeemed. How are you and I redeemed? By the blood of the real lamb. And I will take you to be my people. So now God creates his own people, not only with Israel, but with the church. You will be my people to do a task for me. And that's all four cups seen in our task and what he did for us. Let's do the first cup, the cup of sanctification. I am the Lord who I will bring you out of, uh, from under the yoke of the Egyptians. He's calling Israel to something. And this is the the, the praise at the first cup. So in the Passover, you have four cups, but I'll just start pouring them. And so this is the first cup, the cup that God sanctifies Israel. This is the blessing you, 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 you say before drinking that cup. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, blessed are you, O Lord of God, sovereign of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples, and did exalt us above all nations, and did sanctify us with your commands. For you have chosen and sanctified us above all peoples. We call the Jews the chosen people of God. Why? Why were they chosen? Were they chosen for salvation? No, they were already saved. They got saved in Egypt. What are they chosen for? Because this will tell you what you're chosen for. They were chosen to be a priestly nation to all the nations. They were to be a servant to the nations, to tell the nations about Yahweh and his goodness and his salvation. But the servant of Israel failed. So if you read Isaiah Isaiah will say that Israel failed as being the servant of God, and therefore God had to send a singular servant, the Messiah, the suffering servant, to do the task that Israel failed to do. Suffered, died, rose, and then at that point offers to the nations what Israel was supposed to do. And now it's done through the church. But when the church ends, as you will read Isaiah, he will turn back to his client nation, Israel, and use her again. And he will use her again in the messianic kingdom, the uh, millennial age of a thousand years. Israel's not done, and they're eventually going to be that servant nation they were intended to be. So when you look in the New Testament, when Paul says you were chosen, it's not that you were chosen for salvation. You were chosen, just like Israel was chosen, to be a servant, to do something for him. That's what your choosing is about. That's what your election is about. It's about your task. You're not saved because you're chosen. You're chosen because you're saved, and you're chosen to do a service for the Lord. That's like Israel was doing. That's where you get your concepts from. If you, you realize that, Calvinism goes out the tubes, out the door. It's gone. Down the tubes, out the door. Then we move to the uh, yerkats. Your, your and this is the ritual washing of hands. In the kats, as we have seen in the, even in the Lord's Supper, there would be a washing of the hands. Because in the Hebrew mindset, the hands are the instruments that do, that do the deeds of sin. Um, this is not to clean your hands before you eat. It's not that. It's a purification of your hands. It's a purification of you because you're about to partake in a, a, a sacred ceremony. And just like the Lord's Supper, it's a sacred ceremony. So the washing of hands is to get you ready for the holy act in which you will participate in. Now, the interesting thing... Um, there's a warning about this that if you're not ritually pure, if you're not, and what ritually pure means is that you have sin uh, between you and God that you're participating in, and you have not repented, you have not confessed it, or you're, you're out of fellowship with other believers. So either out of fellowship with God or out of fellowship with other believers. So Paul gives a warning, and he says this Therefore, who eats of this bread and drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Look all through the house. Look for the leaven, right? Examine. Look at the, under the table, under, the, under the, the bed. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And the idea is, even though the Passover and the Lord's Supper, do not take it if you're in sin. If you're out of fellowship with God, you're better off. Don't take it. Get your business figured out with you and God because you can get sick or you can die from taking this ceremonially unclean. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about this, how do you make yourself clean? Well, you're already saved, so the only thing you need to do is confess your sins. And he says, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's how you become clean again. So you do business with God before partaking of it. Now, what Messiah did is he went one step further. Look what it says. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And the idea of girding himself, he had his belt, and you can just imagine that what he did with his belt is he put the towel right there and then went to each of them with that towel and washed their feet, and they would dry their feet with this towel in his hand. Okay, That's what he did. And he he washed the disciples' feet. Now, this starts a commotion with Peter, uh, and we'll see. So in verse 6, he says, then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Now, he's stunned by this, because when you walked into a house, the servants did this to you. So he's taking on the role of a servant. And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. So he doesn't get it. So here's Peter not getting it. He goes, you shall never wash my feet. Now, the problem is, Jesus answered, and again, he goes, if if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter wrongly responds again, said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. So he's misunderstanding the whole thing. What Jesus is teaching is called fellowship forgiveness. He's not talking about salvation. Peter's thinking in salvation terms. And when Jesus says, you have no part with me, he is saying, you have no fellowship with me if you don't allow me to wash your feet. So Peter, he goes, Peter's mistakenly think, no part of you, then I want to be part of you and I want to be saved, so wash my whole body. And Messiah responds, and he says, uh, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but it's completely clean, and you are clean. So Peter, you're clean, but I've got to wash your feet because something else is dirty on you. And what what is dirty is the idea that if you walk in this world in the dusty streets of Israel, you would pick up the dust on your feet. you pick up objects of the world on your feet and that's what needs to be washed away. And it's the same concept. We're saved, we're clean, but as you walk in this world, you pick up the stuff on your feet, so to speak. You participate in the same things they do. You, You do the same things they do, which are sinful, and that needs to be cleansed from you. So only... Only what you need is to wash your feet to restore fellowship, not salvation. And that's what he was teaching him. He says, you're clean. It's not about salvation. It's about washing your feet. And again, what does this go to? How do you get clean? Confess your sins. But instead of water washing your feet, what washes you? If you continue to read in 1 John 1, 9, you go to verse 10, it says the blood of Christ washes you as you confess. So the washing that Jesus did was pointing to the washing of his blood on you to reestablish fellowship forgiveness. Now let's move to the carpus. The carpus is the parsley or, or radish or something bitter, a bitter herb. And um, what we're going to have you do is participate in eating the carpus. Uh, And so if you want, uh, you need to send somebody from your family. And what you want to do is grab uh, the elements of the water and the, the juice and then grab one sprig of parsley for each person in your family, okay? So go ahead and do that right now. Okay, so... The, the carpus uh, is it 's a bitter root uh it's it 's got to be parsley radish, or something that 's bitter okay and what you say is blessed are you, O Lord uh our God, king of the universe, who creates the fruit of the earth. The idea behind the carpus is your parsley is going to have a funny taste to it when you put it in your mouth parsley has a bitter taste to it in the to begin with, okay? But we put something on the carpus so that you will taste it when you put it in your mouth. Now, it's not Roundup or anything like that, okay? So don't worry about the Roundup um, for you greenies. Um, But we put something on it and you will taste it because in in the supper, what you would have in front of you was a cup of salt water, okay? And that salt water is uh, is to be used for dip your parsley in it or your your whatever bitter herb you 're using, and you eat it with the salt water and what is that a symbol of well it 's for Israel it was the bitterness of slavery that th- this is how they were before God redeemed them, and that their tears they, they shed during that persecution and the death of the death of their babies uh, being thrown into the Nile that, that Pharaoh ordered and the heartache and the trials that they suffered, and and will continue to suffer through things as they have heartache and trials through the rest of their life, even though they were redeemed. But they're always to be reminded of what their old life was like and even what this current life we're going through. Now, the interesting thing for us can be said, we are to remember where we came from. And how Christ changed our lives and the bitterness of the old life to now the new life. The, the, the tears that we shed in the old life and now that we have the new life, you're to remember and never forget what you went through, that you've been saved from your sins. And that reminder, it, it will, you will actually have a tactile sense when you taste the bitterness and you taste the salt water. The salt water is to remind you of tears that were shed by you. And the bitterness is to remind you the bitterness of life without Jesus. Because the promise, even though we are believers, we're still gonna go through tough times in our lives and trials and tribulations where we're gonna cry and sorrow and feel pain. But the good news is that the carpus reminds you what's coming. And what's coming is promised in Revelation 21, four. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So if you want to take your carpus, your parsley, I'm going to dip it in the salt water, and you may eat it now. You should say, this doesn't taste good. <laughs> it doesn't taste good. It's not supposed to. It's not supposed to taste good. There's a bitterness in the parsley. And then can you taste the tears? the salt water. It's to remind you. It's to remind Israel of the bitterness of the old life. Something else happened during this bitterness. This is interesting that it happened at this time when Christ was sticking his hands in the carpus. And dipping the carpus in the salt water. Because they would have done that. Look what it says. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. It was the carpus dish. That's what's referring to. Notice. That he's talking about betrayal with the bitterness and the tears. You see why? One of his own that he loved and did everything for is now about to stab him in the back. That's the bitterness of life. And if you've ever been betrayed by someone you thought loved you, or someone who thought that you were for you, and you've been betrayed, you have felt that sting of the carpus, the bitterness the salty, the tears. And so he, this whole thing with Judas is connected to the carpus. Have you ever been betrayed? You, you, you know the pain I'm talking about, right? Messiah is saying, I felt that pain. I know what you're feeling, but don't worry. Remember where you came from, because remember, if you know where you came from, you know where you're going. There will be a place where that that betrayal will never happen again. We will not have any more Judas Iscariots. You know, you won't cry. You won't have anything like that. He continues on. The son of man indeed just goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man whom the son of man has betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. It's you. It's you. And then Satan filled his heart, and then he went to betray him. That's the sting of betrayal. And Messiah has been there and he feels it just like you have. The idea, don't forget the bitterness of our old lives. Look what Second Peter says. For he who lacks these things, talking about spiritual growth and maturity, is short-sighted. Even to blindness. What will, what what did it to blind you of when you don't mature? And has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's what you'll forget. The more and more you're, you're away from where you got saved, you have a tendency to forget where you came from. And if you forget where you came from and you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your old sins, it will well up in you pride that you're special, that, you know, it was, it was uh, God should have given you salvation, and you're to be reminded, no. You have been forgiven of your sins. Don't forget who you were. Where you were to where you are now. That keeps you humble. And that's what it's supposed to do. Now we have the breaking of the middle matzah. The middle matzah is the bread of affliction. And what you would have is the matzah tosh. And you would take the middle matzah out, obviously, And it was the second matzah. So just on the screen, I'm going to show you, that's what this bag looks like inside. It has three compartments, and there's three matzahs in it. Your job in the Passover is to take out the second matzah. Again, if you read the rabbis, they don't know why the second matzah is taken out. They'll say it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're like, well, well, then why, why is Isaac taken out? Why not Jacob? Why not Abraham? Why why would you take out that? It doesn't make any sense. So they just say what it is, but they don't know. But what the three matzahs point to is the Trinity. The Trinity, God, is invisible. He stays hidden. Then who becomes manifest? It is a second person of the Trinity that takes on an additional nature, becomes a man. But this man is different. Because he has no sin, which is codified in the bread having no leaven. Leaven represents sin. But this man, this Messiah, has no sin. He's the second person of the Trinity. And in this breaking of the matzah, um, it's called the bread of affliction. Look at the, the blessing on the screen. Lo, this is the bread of affliction. Now, for the Israelites, it it represented uh, the affliction they suffered in Egypt. But they didn't realize it pointed forward to the Messiah and his affliction, as Isaiah 53 talks about. And so, interesting enough, it has to be burned like this to show the stripe marks. Now, they obviously can connect this to what they experienced in, in Egypt as being whipped by their taskmasters. But who else was whipped with a cat of nine tails? Messiah, right? So that that should be an easy correlation. The one thing that gets them is the bread is pierced. Now, the idea in the Old Testament is that you could pierce your heart, uh, you pierce God's heart and things of that nature. They read where the Messiah would be pierced. And so this is the, the, the kind of mystery for them. <clears throat> it's not for us. But what they're supposed to do in Passover is... The, the father of the house puts the bread in front of a candle, and what will happen in the house that's dimly lit, that candle will show the light through the piercings of the bread. Now, again, they do this, and they, they still scratch their heads, and like, what, what's, what, I don't know, we're just doing this because of tradition, but it's a picture that the Messiah would be pierced, and Isaiah talked about it, and Psalm 22 talked about that. The Messiah would be pierced. And so, that's why you have the burn marks, and you have the piercings. So then, the bread of affliction is you break the middle matzah, representing death. Okay? And that middle matzah is broken, and then put in another bag, called the afikomen, and we'll get to the afikomen later. But um, when you break the middle uh, matzah and you, you put it in the afikomen bag, it refers to Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and he, we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the in chastisement of uh, our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That's what the bread of affliction is about. It's about the Messiah. The interesting thing, when he's being examined the week before he's crucified and Passover is about to begin, look what he says. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now wait a second, that's Passover language. Remember when I first quoted one of the passages about Passover is that everyone is invited to eat the bread, He's using Passover language here. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. That's referring to the matzotash. You can't see God, but who came out? The second person of the Trinity came down from heaven and became a man. It's the matzotash he's referring to when he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Should they have known this? Yes, he's using Passover language. I am coming out of the matzotash. You celebrate three breads, I'm the middle matzah. I'm the bread of affliction is what he's saying. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, right? And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. If you want to have life, you must eat my body. What does that mean, eating? Not literally, this is what threw them off. It means you metabolize what I'm saying. Eating, when you eat something, it goes into your body and then goes to your stomach and then it starts metabolizing into your body. That is how faith is. When you believe in him, he's saying, I want you to metabolize me. I want you to take me in as savior. And you do that by faith. You metabolize him and he becomes part of you. And the Holy Spirit indwells you, right? You have relationship with him. That's what he's trying to say here. But he's using Passover language talked about the officomen. that's where the broken pieces go in and then what the father does of the house he goes and tries to hide it somewhere in the house now the supper's not ended we have more to do so what, did, what does the officomen represent it, the bag has to be linen what did joseph of arimathea and nicodemus wrap the lord's body in linen and then they put aloes and myrrh, about 100 pounds on his body They didn't need to do that, actually. So this is them burying him. This is how they would have done in the ancient world. And they put him in the tomb. Now remember, Passover was Friday. What's Saturday? Feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, yeah, unleavened bread. Remember, unleavened bread represents the Messiah. This has to do with his body. When he's placed in the tomb, something that normally would happen to a human being doesn't happen to him. The scripture says his body did not see decay. Why does his body see decay? Because his body has no leaven in it. He doesn't possess a sin nature. And because his body has never sinned, in his body, his body laid in the tomb and did not decompose at all. It was the same as when they laid him that time after he died. It would have never degenerated. It would never start decorrupting because he is without leaven. Thus, the feast of unleavened bread is on Saturday, and then the feast of first fruits is Sunday. The resurrection. Then the kids will ask four questions to their father. Why, are this, why is this night different? On all other nights, we may eat leaven and unleavened bread, but on this night, we can only eat unleavened bread, Dad. On other nights, we may eat any special species of herbs, but on this night, only bitter herbs. On all other nights, we do not dip even once, but on this night, twice. On all other nights, we eat and drink, either sitting or reclining. But on this night, we recline. We all recline. Why? What it's showing you is how God wants to teach his people. Notice what's happening. The kids are asking questions to the dad. And the dad is the one who will explain the spiritual significance to the children. What does that mean? That is Israel's pedagogy. That is their methodology for teaching their kids spiritual truths. It is the father's responsibility to answer the questions, not the mom. We have it reversed in America. The guy sit it out and let mom do all the spiritual training. That's the opposite of what he told Israel to do. I want the dads uh, answering the questions of the kids and taking the spiritual responsibility to teach the kids spiritual truths, not the mom. Now, the mom plays a part. She's a helpmate, but it's the primary duty of the father. That is missing in Christianity. It is also telling them that when this happens, your instruction happens at home, not in the synagogue. Now we go together at the synagogue and they might have synagogue school for the little boys and girls and then eventually be trained as a rabbi. But the primary teaching in the early years comes from the home, not, not the Sunday school, not the Iwanis program, not the youth program. That's all in addition to what's going on in the home. Unfortunately, here in America, we got it wrong. And we paid, the, paid dearly for that price. The children were not taught at home by the father, We gave them to the churches, and the churches flopped on teaching them. And therefore, we have a a generation that does not want anything to do with the Bible. Second cup, the cup of deliverance. I'm not going to read all that, but it says, Blessed art thou, our Lord God, sovereign of the universe who redeemed us. Now, in this cup, the second cup of deliverance is going to hearken to how God delivered them from the Egyptians, And so what I'm going to have you to do, oops, there we go. back We're going to rehearse the 10 plagues. And what you would do as a father, you'd stick your, your pinky in the wine or the grape juice. And every time you do it, you're going to drop a drop on the plate and say the plague. So I'm going to go through it. You just repeat after me. Every time I drop one, you just repeat after what I say. I'm going to say blood. You say blood. Frogs. You say frogs. Gnats, you say gnats. And we go through how God delivered. So let's start. So the first one, blood. The second one, frogs. The third one, gnats. The fourth one, flies. The fifth one, disease. The sixth one, Boils. Boils. The seventh one, hail and fire. fire. The seventh one, locusts. The ninth one, I skipped one. No, the locusts are uh, number eight. Sorry, I got my numbers back. The ninth one, darkness. Darkness. And the tenth one, death of the firstborn. Okay, so you repeat that in the meal to remember how God delivered them. Now, when we come to the Passover with Messiah, it is his death that delivers us. He takes the wrath. Whereas Egypt took the wrath to deliver Israel, Messiah then takes our wrath on the cross. This is why he says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath will remain on an individual if they don't come to faith. But if you do, the wrath goes to Jesus. That's how it works. Same thing. That's how we are delivered. Now we've got to go back to the afikomen. Keep calm and find the afikomen because it's been hidden by the Father. So they're going to search through the house, look for it, and the children are sent out, and then they find it, and they find the afikomen, and then the bread of affliction is now revealed. And everybody's going to take a piece of it and eat from it, And share it, and the idea is a picture of Messiah's resurrection and what we're celebrating today, or on Resurrection Sunday. So this is what they'll do: the kids go out and they find the afikomen, and they get a reward for finding it. So they'll give them money, they'll give them a a toy or something like that. I was reading about Dennis Prager, and he says when he goes, when I found the afikomen one year, my dad gave me a typewriter, and it's like. Okay, whatever, a typewriter. Functional, I guess, but he gave him a typewriter. So anyway, you can figure out whatever gift you want to give the kids. But anyway, it's usually money. Anyway, what is this about? It's about receiving a blessing if you find the empty tomb, if you find the Offit and The Offit is the Messiah. Now, after the Sabbath on the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, Christ is already gone. The door stayed closed. So what what does it tell you about the body of the Messiah? He goes right through stone. He goes right through doors, remember? So the angel is the one who moves the the door. He's already gone at this point. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing is white as snow. And the guards shook in fear of him because like a And became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Don't you remember that? And so, if you go to Israel today, you'll go to the garden tomb, and uh, it's a beautiful place, and you go inside the tomb, and you can see uh, possibly where Jesus was was buried for that uh, three days. And then on the door, it says, uh, he is not here for he is risen. The same verse right out of the Bible. And so it's interesting. um, And this gives you a good idea of what these tombs looked like in the first century. Anyway, come, see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples. Notice what they keep saying. Go tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. "'Indeed, he is going before you in Galilee. "'There you will see him. "'Behold, I have told you.' "'So they went out quickly from the tomb "'with fear and great joy "'and ran to bring the disciples' word.'" Notice the emphasis, spreading the word, spreading the word. "'And as they went to tell his disciples, "'Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice!' "'So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. "'Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. "'Go, tell.'" You see the, the verbs there? Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And eventually they finally make their way to Galilee, and what is he telling them to do? Same thing. Go and tell. All authority has been given unto me in the heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all in the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am, all, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember... When you, br- you take a piece of the bread of affliction, the afikomen, you take a piece off and you share it. You're sharing the story, the Seder, the order, and the order is the death, burial, and resurrection. It's the order of the Seder. Now, you want to peel off that little uh, cup there. We're going to partake of the bread now. Now that the oil of has been found, we now participate in eating of the bread. And it says this in Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he moved to the third cup, the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption would have came with a blessing. He said, blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine. So in scripture, this is what he did. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper. The cup after supper is the third cup. We're done with supper now, and we're taking the third cup. This is the cup. He's referring to the redemption cup, the cup of the new covenant. In what? My blood, which is shed for you. So the new covenant is made in Messiah's blood, signed, sealed, and delivered. That means once you're in this new covenant, the blood, the eternal blood, and the price that was paid for it keeps you in there. This is, again, pointing to uh, um, eternal salvation, that once you're saved, you can never lose that salvation because it's the blood of Christ that seals you in that covenant. Now, Notice it's, it's a reference to blood. That's why you have to uh, have grape juice. as the color of blood because the new covenant is made in Messiah's blood. Now, this is the thing that people try to sanitize Christianity. They try to take the blood out. They try to take sacrifice out. You cannot get away from it. You have to stare it right in the face. When they sacrificed that Passover lamb, they did it in front of the kids. It didn't matter how old they were the father would have that lamb right in front of him and the kids were all watching. And he would slice that lamb's throat right in front of them. They were fond of it. It became a little pet. And they were grieved to see the blood come from the neck as they caught it in a bowl. They all witnessed it. Now, why did God do that? It's not to be uh, uh, gory or anything like that is to show the children the price of sin. And I could only be satisfied by the blood of an innocent victim. Do not shield your your kids' eyes from the blood of the Messiah. They have to understand it is the blood that makes them forgiven, that cleanses them. And so it was gory. But we dare not avert our eyes to it you look straight at it to understand that is the price for my sin is a bloody corpse of the Messiah on that cross. And notice the new covenant says this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Wait a second. Do you see who it's made to? You didn't say the church. i make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now this hasn't taken an effect to Israel. Now individual Jews has taken an effect but you say, well, wait a second, where do we fit in this? Because we're in the new covenant as well. How do we fit in if this is a Jewish new covenant for Israel? How do we fit into this as a goyim? Thank God for Paul because Paul explains it. And if some of... Of the branches were broken off, talking about the Jewish leaders and and the Jews who didn't believe, okay? They're broken off because of unbelief. And you, Gentiles, Goyims, you and me, being a wild olive tree, we are wild olive trees, okay? We're not part of the olive tree that it's talking about. We are wild. But look what happened. We're grafted in among them, or grafted into the natural olive tree. And with them, with the Jews, become or became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. We don't become overtakers, we become partakers. So the beautiful picture that Paul has in mind is a graft. You see those grafts there? That's you and I. We are not part of the Jewish nation. We, we, and, and, and they have the Abrahamic covenant. But God has allowed us to partake in the Abrahamic covenant in the new covenant aspect of it. So he says, do not boast against the branches. Who are the branches? The Jews. You Gentiles, you goyim, have nothing to boast about. You're in a Jewish covenant. You believe in a Jewish Messiah. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast... If you get prideful and think you're so wonderful and the, the Jews don't get it, if you think you're so wonderful, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Oh, oh. That kind of puts us where we need to be. We're, we are been grafted in, God wanted to graft us in, but the root supports us. That's why we have that, sign, that flag up there. You know what that means? It means grafted in, that sign right there. We've been grafted into the Jewish religion, not rabbinic Judaism, but the one true faith that came from the Jews with the Messiah. We're part of that. And now we experience the covenant that was made in blood. So if you want to take your little cup, and peel off that top, we will take the cup of redemption now, the third cup. And it says this, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. This is the third cup. Saying, this, is the cup, of, uh, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The fourth cup they didn't participate in. This is called the cup of praise, the cup of the kingdom. What you say about the cup of the kingdom, the fourth cup, even though you can pour it, you don't partake of it. You say, blessed are you, O Lord God, king of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, for the fourth cup. But look what Jesus said. He took the cup... So the fourth cup, and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So they took it, but he didn't. So he will take it with us when we're there in the kingdom. We will take the fourth cup when we're in his presence on day one of the messianic reign of the Messiah. So we wait that but he did take another cup that most people are not aware of. You Remember that night? Okay. So we're talking Thursday night. He went a little farther, fell on his face. This is in the garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives and prayed saying, O my father, if it is possible, let what? This cup. What cup is he referring to? Pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What cup is he referring to? This is a cup that comes from the Old Testament. This cup, I'll just use this cup as an example. This cup is not the cup of praise, it's not the cup of the kingdom, it has nothing to do with the four cups and Passover. It is a separate cup, it is the cup of affliction. God would say to Israel when they disobeyed, if you don't get your act straightened out, I will give you the cup of affliction. And that cup of affliction means I will punish you, I will discipline you with my wrath if you don't get your act straightened out. It's called the cup of affliction. The cup he is referring to is that cup. He is going to take the cup of affliction For not only Israel, because in Isaiah 49, just to save Israel alone is too small of a task. God the Father told the Son, your task is to save the entire world, so you will be taking the cup of affliction for everybody. Everyone. From Adam all the way to the last person I create. You will take the cup of affliction for everybody. And Messiah realizes this. He's going to receive the wrath. And the one thing he says, is there another way? And there's not. You must die. You must sacrifice yourself for all of them. That is the only way to redeem them. It is your blood. It's not just human blood. That blood, because he's the God man, is human blood, but that blood has eternal value because he's God. And that's the only blood that can save everybody, so he took that cup for us. Now he says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So as long as we take the past, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Lord's Supper, every time we do it, we proclaim his death, but it has an eschatological aspect to it until he comes. One day we will take the last Lord's Supper And then he will call us home. And when he calls you home, here's what it will sound like. It's the tekiah gedola. It is the last trump in the Feast of Trumpets. It's the last blast. There's a hundred blasts in the Feast of Trumpets. And the last one is the tekiah gedola. That is what you will hear When you take the last Lord's Supper and he's ready to take you home, this is what you'll hear. Then you will hear a voice from the throne saying, come up here. And because of what we're celebrating today, the resurrection of the Messiah, not only did he pay the price for our sins, but it allows us to live in the kingdom forever with him. And because of that, the rapture is assured to us. Everything he has promised in the future comes by the resurrection. I'm ready for that sound. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn through the Passover and how it points even forward to you coming to get us. We look forward to that day, and we know that day is assured because of the resurrection of the Messiah that we celebrate today. Not only did it pay our sins, but it ensures our future, that we will not have to eat the bitterness of the bitter herbs and, and the tears of salt water that we tasted today. We will no longer have to taste that as you wipe every tear from our eyes. We look forward to that. And thank you, Father, because it couldn't have happened without the resurrection of your son. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen.